one of the things I enjoy about being an architect is sitting down with a couple who want to build a house or remodel their existing house. And they often have a few sketches of what they want to have and what they want to have in it. Uh, sometimes they have a floor plan that they've cut out of a magazine someplace that can be used as a starting point. And the couple talks about their dreams. They talk about what they want the house to look like, what rooms they want, how many bedrooms and how many bathrooms they want in the house, and how certain rooms might be used uh, in a particular way, and sometimes even what special materials they might want on the floors, the walls, the, the cabinets. Do they want the house designed so it can easily be expanded and they can add on when the, the family grows? We talk some about how much they, they want to spend, how much they can afford. And, and my goal as an architect is to make all of their dreams and goals a reality, knowing that they're not going to get everything they want. Now, it's a whole lot easier and simpler to design a house from scratch based on what they want than to remodel an existing house. Literally, on an existing house, some things are set in concrete. And change and removal is expensive. And often, just knocking out a wall, as people say, well, let's just knock out that wall, requires new beams, columns, concrete footings. And with a remodel, sometimes it's very difficult to get exactly what you want because the existing structure just won't support it. And difficult decisions have to be made. And as you know, when it comes to building a house, husbands and wives don't always agree on things, right? Did I say husbands and wives don't always agree on things? When people ask me why I stopped being an architect and went into the ministry, I, I respond in two ways. First of all, I say, well, I never really stopped being an architect. While in ministry, I've continued to practice architecture uh, at least part-time, and I enjoy both architecture and ministry. And my second answer is, you know, when I was designing homes as an architect, and I was doing so much marital counseling for couples who wanted to build a home, that I just decided to go into it full time. And I say, did I say that husbands and wives don't always agree on things? They don't always agree on how big the house shall be, what to spend their money on, or sometimes even the most important things in their house. One of the things I like to do when I sit down with a couple that uh, talk about their new house or remodeling their old house I simply ask, okay, what do you want in your home? What do you want in your home? And whatever the wife says first, and whatever the husband says first, is the most important thing to each of them. We like to talk about the most important things first. And if the wife starts talking about the kitchen first, I know that's the most important thing in her house. If she first talks about the kids and how many bedrooms they'll need and those kind of things, I know that's the most important thing to her. The husband may start talking about his study or his home office or his shop in the back or even the garage. And, and sometimes it's the large screen TV. <laughs> and we're, that's just the way it is, guys, isn't it? And oftentimes, particularly for men, energy efficiency and solar heating is the most important thing to them. Now, one of the things I enjoy about ministry is sitting down with a couple who want to get married. It is just so cool. They come in and they sit and they're kind of glassy-eyed and they're in love with one another. And I go, here's this, these, yeah, <laughs> these tender people. And they're excited about making a home together, sometimes about having kids. They have their dreams and their goals. They have their ideas of what married life is going to look like, what family life is going to be. 
But whether it's premarital counseling or even marital counseling, for the most part, we're talking about a remodel, the hardest kind. You know, it's the toughest kind of home to build, toughest kind of house to build, toughest kind of home, and now we're talking about the home now, not the physical structure of the house. What is their home going to be like? What is most important to them? What are their priorities? How will they rear their children? And even for newlyweds, it's a remodel, the toughest kind. Because even young married couples have already grown up in homes where things are done a certain way and there were certain priorities, and more than likely, they grew up in different kinds of homes. And more than likely, the home that they grew up in, the Lord was not the architect. The blueprint was not according to God's plan. And worse, in many cases, Christ was not the Lord of the home, at least not very much. And young couples, they always assume that they're not going to make the same mistakes that their parents did. That's just part of it. But they don't realize that they're bringing all kinds of baggage with them. They've decided already what works and doesn't work based on the home that they grew up in. And they're trying to figure out how all this fits in their new home that they will make together. But the honeymoon ends when they discover they don't always agree. Did I say that husbands and wives don't always agree on things? And before very long, they discover that things are not working out according to their dreams and their goals. You know, when I tell, I tell couples in premarital counseling, we're going to do six to eight sessions, and the last session is going to be after you've been married for a while. <laughs> after you've been married for a while. We're going to come back, and we're going to go back and see how things are going. And, but one of the things I also do in premarital counseling, I go through all the reasons and all the statistics as to why marriages fail in America, as most do. Now, I'm not going to quote those statistics. They have to do with premarital sex in previous marriages. That always negatively affects their marriage. And there are stats on living together before marriage that shows that living together before marriage is pretty much a marriage killer. It's a marriage killer. And health issues and, and the death of a child. There's all kinds of things that cause marriages to fail. Did you ever notice that back in the days when they had those made-for-TV movies? Remember those feel-good, heartwarming movies? They would put a true story on, on TV about a family who went through a very hard and difficult time. Maybe a child had cancer, a child was disabled in some way. One of them had Alzheimer's or, or, or something. And when the movie is over and before they start to roll the credits, you'd often see something on the screen that would say, Ken and June divorced in 1973. That was so, so common. It was a heartwarming movie, but the marriage did not survive it. And so by the time I finished all the reasons that marriages fail in the country, the poor couple is sitting in my office and feeling pretty devastated about their prospects. And I do that for a reason. Because then I tell them, there are all kinds of reasons that marriages fail. And there are all kinds of statistics that show you guys aren't going to make it. But, I say, but when the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord in your home, when God is the architect of your home, 
And when the godly husband patterns his life after the principles in Scripture, and the godly wife patterns her life after the principles in Scripture, and with God as your helper, you train up your child, children in the way they should go, even though you will make mistakes, even though you will sin, even though you will fight and you argue, and some of those are going to be nasty, and you don't do it perfectly, and you want to throw in the towel, even though there's repentance and forgiveness and you still want to throw in the towel, even still, you can throw all the stats out the window because they don't apply to you. They have nothing to do with those who understand how the Lord builds the house, how the Lord builds the home. The 127th Psalm shows us God's blueprint for a godly home of influence. And before we get into the futility of leaving God out of it and trying to do our own way, I want to give you the background for this psalm and show you also where this psalm is going to take us over the next several weeks. So first we'll have the background, and then we'll see where we are going in the sermon series. If you open your Bibles to the 127th Psalm, you'll see in your Bible it'll have a heading. It'll have a heading uh, that, that might be in italics, like mine says, prosperity comes from the Lord, and that's in italics because that is something that the Bible translators have, have added to that to help us understand what, the, what it's going. But unlike other books in the Bible, mine, for example, says a song of a sense of Solomon. Do, does your guys say that? That's in the original Hebrew manuscript. That heading is part of the inspired, inerrant word of God, either added by the psalmist himself or added by the editor who compiled the psalms as, as God's word. And so in the psalms in particular, a song of ascents of Solomon, that is part of God's word. God wanted it there for us to see that. So let's start with Solomon there. Solomon, the author of the psalm. And have you noticed that it kind of reads like a proverb, doesn't it? There's the parallelism of the proverb that goes, goes back and forth. But Solomon is the author. Why do we need to know that? Because if anyone at the time knew about building, it was Solomon. Why? Because God commanded Solomon to build the temple, the house of God. He gave him the wisdom. He gave him the resources, every resource to build the temple of God. If anybody at the time knew something about what he was talking about when it came to building, it was Solomon. And before Solomon's name, it reads, A Song of Ascents. A Song of Ascents. The, the 127th Psalm is a song, it's a hymn. In fact, it's a family hymn. And within the hymn book of the Psalms, we find 15 short songs. They're Psalms 120 through 134, and they comprise this section that many have called the little psalter, which is kind of neat. It's the psalter within the larger psalter of the psalms. And no one knows for sure why they are called ascent psalms, the going up songs, literally. And there's some pretty good theories. And one of the most credible theories is that while making the journey to Jerusalem to go to the Passover, to go to the Feast of the Booths, or one of the other annual festivals, the family would sing these songs along the way. Have you ever done that while you're going in your car to, to pass the time? You see 
praise songs or something like that. And so on their way to Jerusalem, to go up to Jerusalem, which was up on Mount Zion, no matter where you were in Israel or the ancient world, according to the Bible, you go up to Jerusalem. You ascend to go up to Jerusalem. And so while they were making this sometimes long journey, they would sing, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains, Mount Zion, from whence cometh my help. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. So as the family was traveling, going up to Jerusalem literally, they sang the songs of ascents, these songs. And there's another theory that makes sense. When a Jewish man approached Solomon's temple, he supposedly ascended 15 stairs leading up to the vestibule. And tradition holds that on each of the three annual festivals, a faithful Jew would stop on each step and recite or sing the corresponding psalm of ascents. And many of them, though short, reflect upon virtually every important aspect of life for the Jewish community. And so not surprisingly, the middle two, Psalm 127 and Psalm 128, contemplate the Lord's relationship with the family. With the family. And how important a healthy, godly family is to the prosperity of the nation. To the prosperity of the nation and the spiritual life of the nation. It begins with the family. So when you put Psalm 127 and 128 together, you see that the spiritual prosperity, the health and welfare, and the godliness of Israel, that's mentioned in verse 6, the 128th Psalm, of Jerusalem, or any other city, the health and prosperity of the communities, the cities, the whole nation is totally, completely dependent upon the health and the prosperity and the godliness of the families in that community. You've probably heard this before. As the family goes, so goes the nation. Put another way, a community is only as godly as the families in the community. You know, in this political environment we're in right now, we like to start at the top, don't we? We go to directly to Washington, D.C., start at the top, start coming out, you know, or in a community like Emmett, we go to the top, we go to the city council, we go to wherever, and we say, you've got to solve all of our problems, right? Maybe you don't say that, but <laughs> that's really the way, way so many today think of that, you know, and, and one of the biblical principles on which our family was founded was that our Puritan forefathers in the New World believed and practiced the biblical principle that godly families are comprised of godly individuals. That you have godly individuals in the families, and that makes for a godly family. And they believed that godly communities, like Emmett, are comprised of godly families. So you have godly families, and then you have the godly community, and you know where this is going. If you have godly communities, these godly communities are what make for the godly, the godly nation. The health and the welfare and the godliness of the United States of America is totally dependent upon the health and the prosperity and the godliness of the communities and the families in our nation. It starts right here. It starts with the family. And no, I'm not going to quote a bunch of stats on the ungodliness of our nation 
You already know the trouble this nation's in, is in, and it's all on account of the de degradation of the family, the dissolution of the family in, in our country. So that is the background to Psalm 127. I also want to see where the psalm is going to take us. The 127th psalm is divided into two parts, two paragraphs. Verses 1 and 2 have to do with the Lord who builds the house. So look at verse 1 of the 127th Psalm, 127 verse 1. Solomon is using the idea of a house as a metaphor to speak of the home, as a metaphor of the home. Solomon is talking about the pattern, the blueprint, which the Lord uses to build a home. So he says in verse 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Now how do we know that Solomon is talking about a home, about the family, not the physical structure? Because in verse 3, it speaks of the family. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Then look at the next psalm, Psalm 128, the companion psalm. It's about the family, the home, verse 1. How blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you'll be happy, it'll be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within the house. Your children are like olive plants around your table. And then verse 5 says, The Lord bless you from Zion, that's Mount Zion, that you may see what? The prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Begins with the family, moves out to Jerusalem. And then what does he say in verse 6? Indeed, may you see your children's children. Peace upon Israel. It begins with the family. It begins with the home and moves out from there. And so with the 127 Psalms, our touchstone pastor, pass, passage, we'll be studying God's blueprint for a godly home. And so we'll be going over to Ephesians chapter 5 and 6, and we'll be studying the God-given pattern for marriage and the family. What is God's pattern for wives? What is God's pattern for husbands? What is God's pattern for children? Kids, did you know that? That's in the Bible. Lays it all out there in Ephesians. What is your role to be and why as a wife, as a husband, as a son or a daughter, as a father, as a mother, as a grandparent? God instituted and designed marriage and the family. He is the architect. He is the architect for the plan. He lays out the blueprint. And we're going to be laying out that blueprint and looking at it at great depth. And that'll just get us through the first two verses of what God wants us to learn from Psalm 127. So we're probably going to have about five messages that really contain the truths that uh, the, those first two verses take us to. In verse 3 of the 127th Psalm, Solomon turns to the subject of children. And he does this for a specific reason. But I don't want you to look at verse 3 right now. I want you to go down to verse 5, the last verse in this 127th Psalm. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them, speaking up of children like arrows in the hands of a warrior, full quiver. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. What does that mean? The gate of the city where the grown children are going to speak with their enemies was the place of political and civil power. They met at the city gate, the actual gate of the city. That's what it means to sit in the gate. They sat at the gate because that was like the, the, the community square or the city council of, of our day. They would discuss the issues of the city, 
It was more informal at the time of the psalmist. But whoever had the prestige, whoever had the influence, whoever had the voice of wisdom or political clout would gather at the gate. And parents, grandparents, teachers, this is so important for you to understand. The goal of parenting, the goal of teaching our kids is not just that they will survive. It's not just that they will be educated. It's not just that they will thrive. The goal of parenting is to rear children who become godly men and women of influence in their community and in their world. They will become godly, holy men and women who influence their community with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. We are to rear our children so that they will make a difference in this world and in our community for Jesus Christ and his kingdom. You'll hear uh, Chip Ingram say much of that again tonight. Dr. Tony Evans calls them kingdom kids. And as parents, we are called of God to do kingdom parenting. And I like the way he writes it, so I'm going to read this. Dr. Evans writes, Kingdom parenting involves intentionally overseeing the generational transfer of the faith in such a way that children learn to consistently live all of life under God's divine authority. The command to be fruitful and multiply wasn't simply given so parents would have lookalikes. Rather, it was given so God would have lookalikes. The kingdom of humankind was established so man would be the image bearer of God himself. This concept is captured in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image. Therefore, the goal of people in general, and the family in particular, is to mirror God in the visible realm predicated on his reality in the invisible realm. This obviously doesn't mean to mirror what God looks like since none of us know what he truly looks like. It means we are to mirror his nature, his character, his values, and his principles. And this is important. It is essential that parents teach their children the importance of submitting to God's legitimate authority over their lives. And then he says about this, through the submission to him, through the submission to God, comes their greatest influence and impact for him. That's the theme of our second part of this sermon series. The greatest influence, that our kids would have an influence for Jesus Christ and an impact for the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world. And then he continues, Adam and Eve were meant to bring their children under the divine rule as a reflection of their own submission to God and we as parents are to do the same. The family is to be the replication of the image of God in history. Children are image bearers of our great God and King who seek to promote his kingdom agenda, which is a visible manifestation of his comprehensive rule over every, every error of life. And so the second part of our sermon series will deal with the direction and impact of the children that are going to have for the kingdom of God. As arrows in the hands of the warrior, they will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. So the first two verses of Psalm 127 give us the starting point for God's blueprint for a godly home of influence. So 
I want you to look again at verse 1 in the 127th Psalm. <clears throat> now, by this time, you might be feeling overwhelmed with the responsibility of being a parent, of being a grandparent, even teaching Sunday school. If you feel overwhelmed, that's good. You're headed in the right direction. That, that's God's point. Because God gives us the remedy in verse 1 of Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for it gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Before he narrows it down specifically to the home, Solomon begins with a broader principle. Anything you do, whether building a house, guarding a city, working in your job, is worthless unless the Lord is in it. Twice he repeats the phrase, unless the Lord. And three times he hammers it home with the word vain, vain. And to make that point, he makes the point there's really only two possibilities. Either the Lord blesses or all your efforts are in vain. And why does he make this point? Because we all have a sinful propensity to see ourselves and our efforts as primary, don't we? What we do. And to relegate God to a secondary role in what we do. You know, over the years as an architect, I've had people call me and say something like this. I, I took my plans to the, the city and talked to the building inspector so I get a building permit. And he said of my commercial building or my industrial building that I need to get an engineer architect stamp on it. I know they're okay, but would you please look them over and put your stamp on it? I'll pay you for it. And the engineers in our congregation go, yeah, I think I've heard that before too. And I usually tell them a couple of things. Number one, that's illegal and I'd lose my license if I did that. Because I can only put my stamp on plans that have been drawn in my office under my direct supervision. And so then the person usually asks, then what do you charge to redraw them? Like, all it needs is a redraw. I'll just lay their stupid little drawing on my table, and I'll trace it, and I'll put my stamp on it with no, no changing to make sure it meets codes and safety and requirements and, and all those kind of things, whether it has enough uh, exits and, uh, and those kind of things. But don't we so often do the same thing with God? We come up with our own goals. We come up with our own plans. We come up with our own ideas. And how we're going to achieve those. And then we throw them up to God in prayer and say, would you just put your okie dokie on this for me and bless it? Have you done that yet today? <laughs> yeah, we do that so often, don't we? And we ask him to bless it. And, and important things like the family and what God wants to do and rearing our children. Then we wonder why it's not going according to plan. Why isn't God blessing it? we have relegated God to a secondary role, which is worthless. It's vanity. It's because it's our plan. And then when it is going well, we take the major credit for our accomplishments, don't we? And we give God a polite tip of the hat, thank you, God, you know. And when we do that, we rob him of his glory. Since we don't see our total need for God, we fail to render proper thanks to him for what he has done. So in application, the first thing we see in these verses in Psalm 127 is, 
It is futile to build a home or a family using human effort alone. To give the family the higher priority, you must keep the Lord in first place. Put the Lord at the center of all your relationships and let your devotion to him permeate every segment of your home life. One of the things I like to do when I'm counseling a married couple who's having difficulty and the wife's finally convinced the husband to go to the pastor and let's talk to him. You know how that goes. It's always the wife that wants to go. It's always the husband that drags his feet. At least that's the way it's been in my experience. And, you know, they're sitting down and somewhere in the discussion of how things are going badly and what's not working. I like to ask the question, how often do you talk about the things of Christ in your home? I've seen couples that they just stare, blank stare back at me. They, they have no idea what I'm talking about. What do you mean? It, it just never occurs to them. Never occurs to them to, to teach their children, to talk with them when they're on the way and when they're sitting down, when they're rising up. And the doorpost of the house, as soon as you come up to that home, it's got the Lord's word written, written all over it. You know, you know what I mean. Some of them just stare at me with puzzled looks. You, know, you talk about Jesus in the home? Many times they'll respond honestly. And they'll say, you know, in reality, we seldom talk about Christ in our home. That makes for a vain home. To never or seldom talk or look to Christ or, or to seldom look to God for his ways and his purposes. It is futile to build a home or a family using human effort alone. And the second thing we see in application is the Lord must have first priority over everything, including the home and the family. We like to think if we just work harder, we talked about that a little bit in Sunday school class today when God created us to work, you know, but we think particularly as Men, I think men and women do this, you know, in different ways. The men, we like to work harder at our jobs and making a living and bringing the bread home for the family and those kind of things. The women, you know, they, they work harder at building the nest and making it a place that is secure and, and safe for the kids. And we think if we work harder at it, we set better goals, if I just be more efficient in this, and then we'll get to a point where we're better off as a family and things will start working better and us who are workaholics, then I can take some time off and spend with the family because then I provided for them. But listen to this, especially if you're a workaholic like I am. I admitted that this morning in Sunday school. <laughs> we can say ouch once in a while when we're hearing God's word. Verse 2, it is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. The psalmist declares, when the Lord takes over the construction process to do it according to his plan, he's saying the owners sleep like babies. They prosper even though they can enjoy a good night's sleep while the work-obsessed continue the grind. You know, one of the things I struggle with is I may not continue the grind physically in the middle of the night, but boy, my mind is rolling. You guys, no, none of you have that problem? Trying to work this out, trying to work that out, trying to go one place or another, you know, and, and let's face it, you know, the work-obsessed love their hard labor. 
I love being an architect. I love being a pastor. I enjoy it when I do it. But sometimes we only become satisfied with those things that remind us of the sweat and the toil I have put into it. And uh, free gifts from God to a lot of people feel too much like they're cheating. You know, I can't, you know, I've got to work for it. I've got to do that. And the end of verse 2 is one of my favorite scripture passages. Literally it says, For he gives sleep to his beloved. He gives sleep. The direct object is sleep. That's what he gives. Sleep is a gift from God. When the Lord builds the home, and we are laboring alongside of the Lord, following his blueprint, giving him priority, first priority in all that we do, fulfilling our God-given roles as husbands and wives, as fathers and mothers, as grandparents, even as children, God says, hey, I'm going to give you sleep. I'm going to give you rest from your labors. And you're going to be blessed and fruitful even while you sleep. He blesses our homes like we never thought possible or we could never do ourselves. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, as we continue to give these very important truths from your gods from your word lord as we as we continue in scripture and in study on sunday morning and in scripture and study on sunday night and and what we'll be studying in our homes in the meantime during the week father i just pray that you would come to each one of us through your word and through your holy spirit because we're all different here. We all come from different backgrounds and different places, and, and we have different temperaments and personality. But, Lord, I thank you that you meet each one of us exactly where you meet us for who we are and what you want of each one of us and, and holiness and, uh, and, and helping us and showing us, Lord, that uh, I just thank you that you're going to meet with each one of us in a very personal way. And, Father, I pray that these studies will be a blessing to not only our families in this church, but uh, the families and uh, the children in our community. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.